many of you, I suspect, in this room this morning. I've attended my fair share of weddings, and as I'm sure you've experienced, each wedding is different. Some weddings are fancy, very fancy. Some weddings are informal, very informal. Some weddings are long, drawn out, and liturgical, and quite Anglican. And uh, other weddings, I think of one I went to, a Baptist wedding, was about five minutes long and was the prelude to the main event of the reception. And it was at one of those receptions when something of an unforgettable moment happened in my life. If you ask Catherine, she would say something quite traumatic for me. And it happened on a dance floor. It happened on a wedding dance floor. Now, I am not one of those people who likes to dance at weddings. Uh, looking around the room right now, I can imagine that some of you love to dance at weddings. I am not one of those people. And uh, it was at one of these weddings when, when I thought it was safe because it was a slow song. And so Catherine and I went on the dance floor and I slow danced. But then a fast song started. And I think it was the twist. Um, and I was terrified. And I thought to myself, how quickly can I get off this dance floor right now? But, but I stayed. Um, Catherine convinced me to stay. It was all her fault. <laughs> You heard the Genesis reading. It was all our fault. <laughs> and that's when something unforgettable happened, something forever seared into my mind. It happened when an older lady, seeing my lame attempt to either get off the dance floor or to try to dance, took it upon herself to come over to me and tell me quite loudly that I was shaking my hips all wrong. <laughs> she was adamant. Her exact quote, I am not making this up, as music played, and as she grabbed me on both hips, was, come on, Jamie, you've got to shake these. <laughs> Needless to say, I am not one of those people who likes to dance at weddings. I would rather contribute to a wedding in any other way. I'll buy the couple a blender. I will play the piano, anything, just not dance. I know what my contribution to a wedding should be and what my contribution to a wedding should not be. There is an expectation, we've all experienced this when we attend a wedding, that we make a contribution to the wedding. Maybe you do buy the couple a blender. Maybe you give the couple some spending money. Whatever you do, you're expected to make a contribution when you attend a wedding. But of all the contributions ever made at all weddings in world history, there is one contribution that outranks them all. There is one contribution that is the most famous and the most well-known. And it was at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when Jesus turned the water into wine. If you just did a man-on-the-street interview and asked people, even non-Christians, to name some of Jesus' miracles, it's a safe bet to say 
that Jesus turning the water into wine at that wedding that day is one of his most well-known miracles. If Jesus had a greatest hits album, turning water into wine would be one of them. It's a remarkable story, and many of us have heard it many times, but it's much more than just a remarkable story. And we'll see that this morning as we turn to John chapter 2. As we consider what God reveals to us in his word, it's as if this section of scripture actually has so many things to say and so many layers of significance and so many themes of the gospel. It's almost as if this story itself is like the wine in the story itself. The story is better than we can describe and it's even more than we can handle. Jesus makes a contribution all right at that wedding, but it's not just a fun story. The contribution Jesus made at that wedding, the gift that he gave at that wedding that day is still the gift that he gives to you and to me. So our text this morning, John chapter two, verses one through 12, let me just say, is an absolute treasure trove. So to help us attempt to grab hold of some of the riches of the gospel here, I'd like to, as usual, as we usually do, follow the flow of the text, and we'll stop to consider five key points. I know five is a lot, so I'll move quickly, I promise. And to help keep myself organized and to hopefully keep you awake, I'm going to alliterate these points as much as possible for some of you note takers, see if it'll help you, because there is so much here that we shouldn't miss. So look with me first, look with me first at the first two verses as we consider the significance of the setting, the significance of the setting. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So three quick things here. These are not main points. Hear me. These are not main points, but I would be doing us all a disservice if I sped past them. The more you read John, the more you immerse yourself in John's gospel, the more you realize that everything he says has significance. There's not a wasted word for the author John. So these aren't main points, but John includes these things for a reason. First, he begins with these four words, on the third day. Does that remind you of any other story in the Bible? On the third day. Well, it should, and that's for a reason. John wants it to remind you of the resurrection. If the gospel of John was like a symphony, and if the cross and the resurrection are dominant melodies in this symphony, John introduces those melodies even very early on in his gospel here. And very often in his gospel, he'll bring those melodies in and sprinkle them in, even when you're not expecting it. So John is saying, look at this event in Cana of Galilee under the shadow of the cross and the empty tomb. On the third day, he's saying, this gospel is not just a collection of a bunch of different stories about Jesus. There is one story of Jesus on the third day. Second, Jesus is about to perform his first miracle 
at a wedding. This is not accidental. Jesus could have chosen to perform his first miracle anywhere. Jesus is God. So understatement of the millennium here, he can do whatever he wants to do. And of all the places he could have chosen to perform his first miracle, to have it chronicled forever in Holy Scripture, Jesus chooses to perform his first miracle at a wedding. Jesus' presence at a wedding, again, forever chronicled for us in Scripture, does indeed say something about Jesus' blessing of marriage and about the kind of marriage Jesus chooses to bless. Our approach here at Truro, just so you know, in case you don't know this, is to preach through books of the Bible. We're not going to cherry pick our favorite topics and always return to them. And we're not also going to skip the topics that we don't like. We'll address matters in God's word as God's word raises them. So marriage is not the central topic, again, of this story, not by any means. This is not a, a, a scripture text about marriage but it is mentioned here, so I must address it, and I'll address it as briefly, but also as clearly as this, the Bible addresses it. Jesus blesses the ordinance of marriage between a man and a woman by his presence at the wedding of a man and a woman. Third, significant detail in the setting is that he chooses to perform this miracle in a home. In a home, not in a, a grand ballroom, not on a mountaintop, not even walking on the water yet. Jesus performs his first miracle in a humble home. So we see this theme again, that the glory of God is displayed in the humility of Christ. He's born in Bethlehem. He's laid in a manger. He lives in Nazareth. And his first miracle here is in a home. So remember the prologue, which we said is sort of like a GPS guide to the rest of this book. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. And right here we see it. He dwelt among us in our homes. So there's significance in the setting of this story. Again, not main points, but important points from the author and from Christ himself. The story transpires on the third day at a wedding and in a home. So now in the first half of verse 3, we're presented now with the seriousness of the situation. We know that Jesus' mother Mary is there, presumably Mary had been given or had taken on some sort of hospitality role for this wedding. And we know that Jesus had brought his disciples with him. So verse 3 tells us, the wine ran out. Now let me say, this is not a, what we might think of as a catastrophic situation. Uh, uh, an emergency, uh, a crisis of cataclysmic proportions. I think it's refreshing that Jesus' first miracle in which, verse 11 will tell us, he, he manifests his glory is not in response to some kind of catastrophic crisis. We'll get to some of those later. Death of young ones, death of, of friends, blindness, 
disease, demonic oppression. We'll get to some more serious miracles. Jesus' first miracle is in response to a, miracle, a, a problem in the home, a problem on the ground. The wine ran out. This was a, a pretty big deal in that culture because it would have brought great shame upon the groom and his family. And then by virtue of that, great shame upon the bride and her family. So this is a serious situation. And refreshing that, our Savior shows his mercy and his character in response to a situation like this that you might experience in your home. Now think about this for a minute, though, about this serious situation. It was likely caused, at least in part, by Jesus. Jesus decided to bring at least five disciples with him. When Jesus mailed the postcard back to the bride and her family, it said, Jesus plus five. Imagine the bride and her fiance's eyes opened pretty wide when they realized not only were they going to have the honored guest of Jesus of Nazareth, but also five of his disciples. So verse 2 says Jesus was invited with his disciples, meaning he brought them. So if this serious situation was partially caused by Jesus, then Jesus was not surprised by it. Jesus is going to manifest his glory He's going to give a miraculous sign in response to a serious situation that doesn't surprise him. That he not only allowed, but ordained in order to show his glory. Lesson here. We may never know the why behind the serious situations we face. But we can know peace when we give those situations to Jesus. I know this sounds basic. This is like basic arithmetic. But sometimes the most profound truths are the most basic truths. And we shift in that direction now of giving a problem to Jesus as we go back to verse 3 through to verse 5 with the substance of what is said. It's the substance of what is said between Mary and Jesus and Mary again. So Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So first, Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. So again, basic takeaway. Mary knew to bring a problem to Jesus. There's a problem. What do I do with this problem? I know I bring it to Jesus. One commentator pointed this out. Mary had learned by experience that to draw Jesus' attention to a need was a sure way of getting something done. So now the substance of what Jesus says in response. So Mary brings the problem to him. How does Jesus respond? I think there's two pieces of Jesus' response here that need explanation. First, he says, woman, 
What does this have to do with me? What an interesting thing for him to say to his own mom. That first word might, might sound harsh to us. Woman. I don't care who you are. You might be the sinless son of God. You talk to your mom that way. You're getting an attitude adjustment. <laughs> Call your mom woman. What are you thinking, Jesus? Jesus did not intend that word harshly. This is a weakness of our English translation. The word that Jesus uses for woman here, the way he talks to his mom here, is the same word he uses for woman from the cross in John 19, 26. So a better translation here would be my lady or woman dear. So he says, my lady, woman dear, what does this have to do with me? Jesus asks the best questions, doesn't he? He's the best question asker. Because in this question and in the tenderness yet the directness with which he asks the question, Jesus points out to his own mother that she had made the mistake of coming to him as her son. Yes, he was her son, but he was her Lord. And so his orders no longer come from his mother. His orders come from his father. So he lovingly, tenderly asks his mother a question that gently causes her to reorient how she comes to Jesus. Not as her son, but as her Lord. So, let me just pause here and ask you and me, how do we come to Jesus with our problems? Do we come to him as our assistant? Do we come to him presumptuously as our consultant? Do we come to him vaguely as the, you know, you hear this phrase sometimes, the, the man upstairs? This question from Jesus invites us to reconsider how we come to him. Are we coming to him as those things or as Lord? So now the second part of what Jesus says. We're still looking at the substance of what is said here, this incredible back and forth between Jesus and his mother. So the second part of what he says is, my hour has not yet come. Now we know the end of the story. We know he's going to end up performing a miracle of some sort. So why does he say to her, my hour has not yet come, but then proceed 30 seconds later to perform a miracle? So what he's saying here, and my hour has not yet come, is he's talking about the cross. When you hear Jesus talk about the hour, hour is shorthand for him of the cross. He never takes his eyes off the cross. So what he's saying is the cross will be my great, most glorious manifestation of my glory. I cannot yet manifest my glory publicly, greatly lifted high for all to see here. So again, he's, he's following orders from his father, not from his mother. His father hasn't yet called him to publicly manifest his glory. So he will indeed manifest his glory. He will indeed perform a miracle, but not as publicly as Mary first wanted. So now back to Mary. What does she say to the servants now that she's been reoriented, now that she has been reminded, oh, okay, yes, this is the baby that I nursed in Bethlehem. This is the one I've seen grow up, but this is also Lord. What does she say now that she's been reoriented to her servants? Do whatever he tells you. She doesn't know what he's going to do. It very well may be that Mary thought he wasn't going to do anything. 
He had just said, my hour has not yet come. But she trusts him. She knows that whatever Jesus does is right. Your problem, your situation is in good hands with the Lord Jesus. There's a lesson here, again, a simple lesson from the simple faith of Mary in her son, the Lord. Whatever he decides to do, I trust him. It's an old hymn from the 1600s that puts it this way. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all, and so to him I leave it all. Mary left the problem with Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. So now we see the solution with the Six stone jars in verses 6 through 10. This famous contribution of Jesus at a wedding, I would say much better than a blender. Jesus, in verse 6, proceeds in this way. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast, the head waiter, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from. Interesting note here. Though the servants had drawn the water, knew. They knew. The master of the feast called the groom and said to him, everyone or most people, most people serve the good wine first meaning you're crazy. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So simply, by the word of his power, Jesus transforms water into wine, and it's such good wine, such high-quality wine, that the master of the feast is amazed. You could say that Jesus really knows how to lift their spirits. No? Okay. So, sorry. This is Jesus' solution here. He uses water that was reserved for purification. Track with me here. A resource that could only be used to purify the outside and could only be used to partially purify the outside. It was there for purification of people's dirty hands and dirty feet. So Jesus decides to perform this miracle using a resource used for outer partial purification. And he takes that resource and he transforms it into something that can fully satisfy a body inwardly. And what Jesus does in this supernatural solution is to provide an answer that is not just sufficient, not just enough. His solution is, you'll see this, we'll see this, more than sufficient, more than enough. 
Think about the math with me for a moment, for those of you in the room who are uh, math-minded or not. These six stone jars, John tells us, held somewhere between 20 or 30 gallons of water each. So that means Jesus provides this wedding party with 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Some of your ears just perked up when I said that. I saw that. It's a lot of wine. This is his solution. This is Jesus' famous solution to taking a resource meant for outer purification and transform it into overflowing, abundant, superior wine. Why? Why does he do this? What is the deeper meaning of this miracle? And that's where we go next with the sign here. It's a sign of superabundance. This isn't some kind of magic trick by Jesus that he performs to either impress his disciples or just to satisfy his mom's request. When Jesus performs a miracle, it is a sign. That's actually the word used for these miracles. They're signs. It's the only word John uses for miracle in his gospel, sign. They point somewhere. And what Jesus is pointing to What he's pointing forward to here at this wedding, he's pointing to the cross, to his hour. So Jesus does fulfill Mary's request. He does. But he fulfills it in a way that's anticipatory. It points to the cross. Remember, what was the number of water jars that were waiting there? Six. That's significant. Even the number of water jars is significant because seven would have been the number of completion. Seven would have been the number of perfection. So Jesus transforms six stone jars of water meant for purification into wine. So Jesus is pointing to himself. Jesus is saying, I am the true and greater wine. I am the complete offering. There is no lack in my offering. There is no insufficiency. There is no partial partiality in my offering. Jesus takes something that could only incompletely purify outwardly, and he perfectly fulfills it to give us total purification, total cleansing, and life and joy inwardly. The main point here is Jesus is the new wine. Jesus is the new wine, and he's overflowing, and he's overwhelming, and he's over the top, and Jesus pours himself out from the cross once for all. And what does Jesus say on the cross once again to his mother? After he addresses her, saying, woman, behold, your son, what does he say? He says, it is finished, perfect, not lacking anything. And then on the third day, on the third day, Jesus proves that his sacrifice is perfect and is sufficient by his resurrection out of a stone-cold grave. Jesus' new wine is the new wine of grace. And Jesus' new wine is not just what we need. 
Jesus' new wine is not just enough. Jesus' new wine of grace is more than we need, more than enough for every situation in your life, for every sin, for every sorrow. All I have needed, his hand hath provided. God has provided for you and for me and for the whole world every resource of grace we need, every demonstration of faithfulness we need, all the forgiveness we need, and God has provided it for us in Christ on the cross. One commentator wrote this, when the grace of Jesus comes to us, there is enough to spare for all. No wedding party on earth could drink 180 gallons of wine. No need on earth can exhaust the grace of Christ. There is a glorious superabundance in it. So Jesus sits down at that wedding. Mary brings to him that problem. And Jesus works a miracle in those stone jars. And he's pointing to the cross. And he's pointing you to the cross as well. Because what Jesus offered there on the cross, once for all, he offers to you fullness of grace, overflowing grace, more grace than you could ever imagine. Not in the insufficient water jars of the world or in the insufficient water jars of your own works, but in the new wine of himself to cover every need for every heart. Jesus offers himself. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercies. To multiply trials, he multiplies his peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace, full to the brim. Father, we thank you and praise you for the great grace you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to remind us of the glorious riches that are ours in him. We bring to you our situations, our need, our questions. We trust you. We ask you to point us to the cross, the proof of your great love and great grace for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.